When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Book Ride Podcast. Today, we are talking about the dream field. No, no. Shoeless (laughs) Joe. Joe. No, no, no. Field of Dreams, the 1989 movie, and the 1983 novella? Was that? 82. 82. 82. 1982 novella um, called Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella, um, upon which the movie is based. We're going to do what we do. We haven't done these in a while where we read the book, watch the movie, and talk about them together. You know what's interesting? I haven't really thought about, you know, sort of the meta commentary about why we choose the the movies we choose or the books we choose to do outside the ones that we like. We haven't yet chosen a one where we know the book is superior somehow. We haven't looked at a failed oh. adaptation. We start with successful movies because we're really talking about the movies here as much as anything, mm-hmm. right? Because it's book nerd movie club is how we think about it. We think so... Where the movie is more the central thing. You could choose, say, Great Gatsby and choose either the Robert Redford adaptation or the um, Baz Luhrmann one, both of which aren't terrible, but I don't think they have a lot of affinity mm-hmm. in our hearts or the wider world. Right. Where these movies, the, the movies are the, the, the locus, the gravitational center of why we choose these. And it so happens that sometimes the books are pretty good. They range from pretty good too very good or mm-hmm. very, you know, um, in the case of like The Princess Bride, where everything you see in the movie is really in the book and really just some stuff is left out, to Jurassic Park or Hunt for October, where a lot of what you like is there, but there's some interesting additions and subtractions, some clarifying yeah, things that I happen. Think- Yeah, along with that, it's like we need to have affection for at least one of the things between the book or the movie, and then the sense that the other one is not awful. Like, yeah, we haven't, and we haven't done anywhere we've loved the movie and the book was just bad. No, no, that's that's right. And like the Da Vinci Code, which we started off, I think we have sort of equal affections in a way for the or different kind of different. uh, The the lever is much more equal to talk about them there. The difference here. Is this is our first time, I think, when our affections are so <laughs> disproportionate for the movie than the book. And I have to admit, we can get into, we will get into this. Yeah. My book reading memory of it is way different. I, oh, really? I, again, I read it, I read it when I was like 13. So I read it when I was, you know, a much younger person. And so I didn't read with the same eyes and I just don't remember. Yeah. I remember liking it okay. Okay. Um, 
I did not like it okay this well, time. Well, and yeah, when you were 13, that was before your insufferable literary nerd phase. I was more of a baseball fan than a All book right. fan at that okay. point. And there's a lot more baseball yes, in a that, novella, so I can see you now why I liked that it. That makes sense. That makes sense. That if you were reading this as a baseball fan and it's a baseball mm-hmm. book, I can see some affection there. If I have to, I will be very honest that if I did not have to read the whole book as part of being able to do this, I probably Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Would not have finished the book. And that's even knowing that it's not very long. I mean, you didn't have a lot to slog through and still wouldn't have done the slogging. I think we're going to do our first sponsor break now. And then the next thing we're going to talk about is our pre-existing relationship with Field of Dreams and then how a second viewing, you know, how, how we've come to it now. What, what, what do we see with our um, adult eyes? But we'll do that right after a quick sponsor break. I have to ask you before we keep going, I read a 260-page book. What did you read? Oh, I, I guess... That's about what I was. I mean, it's not 450 pages. Okay. I mean, I'm just okay. saying it's not that. It's not that long. It's, okay. It's yeah. I was like, long. is that a novella? We don't need to argue about the length of a novella now. No, no, no. I, I guess I also did it on Kindle, which can be deceiving if you fly through it. You're like, that was a short book. But yeah. You okay. Because I much think time there maybe otherwise. was a short story version at some point, and I just yes, had a moment of panic of like, oh god, are we not actually talking? Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, 
And so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players. But what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive even the help of Guillen Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at leebardugothefamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shuei barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. About the same thing? No, no, we're talking about we're <laughs> okay. talking about the same thing. All right, let's talk about the movie. So it came out in 1989. I think we've talked about this either together in a post-show, on the show, I don't remember, but a super important movie for me at a really interesting time in my own life. I was 11 years old, um, riding my bike around. In the summer of 89, when it came out, um, we would ride our bikes up to the Hillcrest Movie Theater, and you could go see movies for cheap during the day. I think it was a buck. You could go in on a Tuesday afternoon and see a movie. So in Kansas in August, which is basically mm -hmm. southern Iowa, yep. northeastern Kansas, essentially. So it was like going to see a movie about a place you're from, about a sport you like, um, and it was air-conditioned, and you could do it by yourself. You know, I get my quarter pound of runts, um, <laughs> no bananas, from the from the pharmacy on the corner where the guy would, would jimmy around the banana runts to give me my quarter pound, sneak it into Hillcrest. And my brother and I would watch, I think we watched Field of Dreams four or five times that summer, and that doesn't include the twice I went with my dad, who... In 1989, was 37 years old, Ooh. which is exactly the right, exactly the same age as as um, Ray Kinsella. And this, you... and my dad's own relationship with his father, is not like this one, but it was fraught. Wow. And my grandfather was dead at this point. He had died two years before this movie came out. Have you and your dad um, talked about his experience of this? Rebecca, we're from the Midwest. Wait. <laughs> Look, I had to ask. I know. We both like the movie, and I think. So it's very, very, very close to my heart. In a way, I can't even talk about it. I mean, there's no objectivity, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. But like, you don't want to talk to me. I'm not a, I'm not a, my, even my scholarly eyes, which I sometimes like to put on, it's not, a, I don't want to do, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing here. Like I can do a little bit of it, but this is a movie that was like super, super formative to me in a lot of ways. And it's been very important since. And 
I have very great fondness for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Rebecca, talk to me about your early experience. Yeah, you know, I texted my dad this week and asked him if he remembered the first time that he saw a field of dreams. And he said he doesn't remember, but he assumes that he went to see it at the theater or that he and my mom would have gone to see it together or something. I was seven when it came out in 1989. I don't know when I first saw it. I yeah. think it was, it would either have Borderline been... Borderline to be seven. You like, you could have gone, but you also yeah, could have not I, at that point. All my memories of it are from watching it in our family's living room on TV. Mm. And so I, I think I must have seen it either, you know, when we were able to rent the VHS at Blockbuster or when it aired on cable. Well, I do know that when it aired on cable, at some point we recorded it. And back in that day, it was, you know, like you recorded and then you pressed pause on the recording whenever commercials were on TV <laughs> so that you could, mm -hmm. you know, try to splice it together. And then I watched this just repeatedly through yeah. my childhood. And this watching it, with the lens of, you know, we're going to talk about it on the show and I'm trying to take notes and think about it. This is the first time I've tried to subject my affection for it to any kind of scrutiny. And it is also not something that I want to put deeply under the lens. There's just some, it's very, it's a very magical movie. Mm -hmm. I just feel very connected to it. And there's, I cannot really remember a time in my life that this wasn't a touchstone piece of media for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess bigger picture things too for the movie that I was wondering about. Was there a movie before that hung quite so bright a lantern on the fathers and sons relationship are screwed up, but it doesn't have to be? Mm. Do you know what I'm getting at? Like there's there's a lot of like my dad was a jerk or we you know we didn't get along or he was tough on me or whatever. But this doesn't only deal with that, but it also suggests one of the magical pieces of it is that it doesn't have to be that way. Right. You, know, you don't need a magical cornfield, but this is something we want to ameliorate. This is something we want to change writ large. That like These dynamics are toxic and they don't do anybody any good. And almost like a different kind of sensibility to understanding parent-child relationships. Almost, almost the birth of kind of a new parenting. Yeah, you look at how it's... Costner looks at his daughter in the movie. He's actively trying to break patterns, mm -hmm. right? Like he, he's thinking about what kind of parent he wants to be. And I've talked with some of my friends that are of my age. And I, I think it hadn't quite penetrated the public consciousness yet that a lot of us of my age who have kids actively think about being good parents. And what that, and, and you know, that, and I think a lot of people think about that, but it's not just about what I want my kids to be, but how to, how to maximize for their happiness, which weird to say is a relatively recent invention in parenting it is. to think about this. It is. And I think this is a transitional kind of a document, right? I had never, Where, yeah, I'd never considered that, but I think you're right. And one that comes after it that does a similar thing, there's a similar kind of relationship repair in a son understanding his father in a new way in Big Fish. Yes, yes. That's a great example. I, an answer, or um, uh, a, a, a scion, of mm -hmm. this kind of thinking of how to understand. And, and, and it happens with mothers in different contexts too, of understanding your mothers and grandparents and things like this. But like, this is one where it's looking for a way to articulate the pain of the schism and then what goes on to it. And like almost, I mean, the metaphorical reading is that the universe has to reinvent itself for fathers and sons to get along. Right. It's basically what the movie is sort of arguing. Um, but I think, we're talking about this a little bit too, that the, the strong reaction that many, especially men had 
especially white Protestant men, I think that's fair to say, mm-hmm. um, is because they hadn't seen this before, right? It wasn't just that this is a, sh- a story about Shoeless Joe walking out of a cornfield magically. It's what the co- emotional core of the movie is, and frankly is the thing that makes the movie resonant in a way that the book just isn't for, yeah, for a lot of reasons we can get into. I think it's powerful because it's not about magically changing the past. It's not about no. you're right. Your dad was a jerk. He should have been a different person. The healing that happens like on the page or on the screen here is the perspective that Kevin yes. Costner gets about his father of, Oh, I get, I get to see him at a time in his life where there was still like life in his eyes when he hadn't been worn down by the world yet. And to realize as an adult that your parent is a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is a really significant thing. But then to go the extra step of your parent is a person and how did their experience of just being a person in the world shape your experience of them as a parent. And I think that like adds a kind of compassion that is essential and also is not easily, it's not made easily available to men in culture or media. No, no. And and this one also, it's, he doesn't actually have to grapple directly with his father, Mm -hmm. right? Like his dad isn't alive sort of in Florida, still being a cantankerous mess. He has to go down there. So there is the useful fantasy distance that allows a kind of, I don't know, some sort of work to be done that would be more difficult if it was actually his, I guess at this point, 70-year-old father. Mm-hmm. Actually, his, mother, his father was really old, actually, the way this thing actually, if you do the time right. of how of old John Kinsella actually would have been here, I think it would have been his mid-80s or something like that, even though Ray was still only 37 at the time of the book. So that's one thing that really struck me as a new thing in, the, in sort of a content kind of a way. Um, also, we're in the middle... We're coming actually to the end of the great a great run of baseball movies, and as quiet as kept, this is really a baseball movie. Yeah. It's not a sports movie. There's some baseball in it, but it's very baseball back of the palette. But Costner almost didn't do the movie because he had just been in maybe the best baseball movie, maybe the best sports movie of all time in Bull Durham, which is also a baseball movie, completely different and very literary in its own way. I mean, Susan Sarandon doing a little light BDSM while reciting <laughs> Whitman. Who doesn't want to sign up for that? Um and then, you know, also The Natural was a few years before that. So we get this run of The Natural and um, uh, 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 Field of Dreams, Bull Durham. And then a few years later, you get League of Their Own, which I think mm-hmm. those four, take your pick. You're looking at the four best baseball movies. Yeah. From Eight Men Out comes out a little bit before this, yeah. which is about the 1919 Black Sox scandal. A pretty good movie with John Cusack playing Shoeless Joe, the lead, lead there, weirdly, a very different look than Ray Liotta, um, which we can talk about some more. But like, this is the height of baseball as, I don't know, a movie kind of a trope that's looking at baseball from a few different ways, not sort of a standard sports movie. And then we're not quite at the apotheosis of Costner. I don't think that comes until Bodyguard in 1991, where it's like mm-hmm. that's the, the biggest movie in the world and the biggest song in the world, and he's next to Whitney Houston and sort of holding his own. But he's on his way to being the bodyguard. But this really crystallizes what Costner is good at and what he tries in some other places shows what he's not good at and who he doesn't become. Um, so I know Kevin Costner is very important to you. So that's what we're going to, we're, we're going to talk about casting writ large, but where we are in the, this was a giant hit. It, yeah. it remains often comes at the top list of the best baseball movie of sports movies of all time. 
which again, it does have sports in it, but I don't, I don't yeah, think it's I, a sports movie. I don't, it's not about sports. It's not about sports. It's not about like the meaning of sport, you know, writ no. large. It's one of the notes that I had was the book is a baseball book that has a, a father book. and son story. And I think the mm-hmm. reason the movie works and we will, a large part of this podcast episode is going to be just an ode to Phil Alden Robinson. And, and who adapted hey, this and hey geography the of, of St. Robinson. <laughs> right. The God what, of adapting. What a genius, like a just genius. truly a work of art that he, what he did adapting this from the book, but he turned a book about baseball into a movie that's about fathers and sons. And it mm-hmm. just uses baseball as a very effective frame. And I, I think that's why this is so widely appealing that you don't have yeah. to be, I think you got, you probably have to be a baseball person to like really love the book. Shoeless Joe by WP Kinsella. You need not be a baseball person no. to relate to no. field of dreams. The other thing that's interesting thing about where kind of the movie world we're in right now, or then in nineteen, in the late eighties, like Batman had just come out as well in eighty nine. So we did, we weren't in super like we had Superman in nineteen seventy seven. So the nature of the blockbuster was a completely different thing. It was a lot of buddy cop stuff, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, we're doing Lethal Weapon two, we're doing Die Hards, we're doing Terminators. And that's the action blockbuster thing, but there was still room for dramas to be a blockbuster. If this is made now, well, I had this for the end, mm. but like this is not, this does not gross what it grossed at the box office in 1989 for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. One is it's pretty slow. I mean, there's, <laughs> The st- it's starring Kevin Costner, I, and the second leading star is Corn. I, I mean, know, it's a I really think, tough hang. I think if it's made now, it's like focus features. You know, it's a smaller. I don't. Yeah, I don't even know what that looks like yeah, at this point. It's a much smaller deal, or someone would have tried to make it. You know, as they always ask at the end of the Rewatchables podcast, which we both enjoy mm-hmm. quite a bit. Could this have been a ten episode Netflix series? And somebody probably would have tried. Or a four episode or a limited edition. Yeah. It, re- it really could have been. I think it, for me, again, you always have to situate these places in time. Just about of a perfect movie mm-hmm. as you're going to get. But it does fall into this nice little 1985 to like 1990-ish what-if yeah. trend in blockbusters that was Back to the Future, Field of Dreams, and Big with Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. All of these are a little bit what if time travel is real. Um, actually, Big is a really interesting um corollary that to Field is, of Dreams. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Because it doesn't explain the magic. You know, it's a very simple kind of a situation. It's about being a kid, but also being a son and also being an adult all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that collapsing and telescoping of fathers and sons and daughters or uh, uh, mothers is a little bit different there. But I, this idea of you could have a $200 million star-making role which doesn't really need any special effects. Like the biggest special effects here is like a little translucency filter when like Shoeless Joe is walking into the corn. Like that was kind of it. Interesting to see w- what this would have been um, if it's done now. I think the other thing that if this was done now, the valence of who gets to come back and why is completely different. I think oh, these are Negro yeah. Leaguers. This mm-hmm. is Satchel Page saying, you know, I never got to show my stuff in the big leagues. And I always wanted to throw against Ruth or something like yeah. that and see and see what was I really made of. That That's completely different here. Um, but in the Costner realm, I think he's the perfect person for it. I wouldn't recast him at all. But you see why this is not a good role for, say, well, his, his running buddy in Bull Durham. Tim Robbins probably could have done it. You could see mm. kind of a similar vibe he's thrown in Shawshank. Mm-hmm. 
but he's a little too tall. <laughs> he's a little too... There's something non-threatening about Costner uh-huh. that is really important for the Costner thing. And it's why it doesn't work in The Postman. It's why you look at Dances with Wolves right now, an extremely tough hang from 1990 to watch these days. You look at Waterworld, you look at The Postman. Mm-hmm. He's not an action hero. This is Costner doing Costner at his very best. Can you say, tell me why (sighs) I am right about Costner... This is his groove. This is his place. This is where you want Costner. What are we getting from him that's so him and so important to this There is this like emotional availability, I think, that makes him a great actor and also non-threatening and also then not great at the action hero Mm -hmm. situation. He's not going to kick your ass. Yeah. He's just not going to. He is. Yeah. He's just not going to. And Mm -hmm. it's. I think it's just a wonderful, he has a wonderful way of harnessing that. Like in the 2021 slang, like if Costner were 37 today, we'd be talking about the characters he could play as like, he's a wife guy, you know, like he's good at conveying warmth and affection and sort of a depth of care with a few lines. And, you know, again, Phil Alden Robinson did magic with this script. And there are some beautiful lines in the book that do make their way into the script. So W.P. Kinsella, like that, the source material is strong there, too. But this is just the right zone for Costner. You know, like he wasn't he wouldn't have been a teenage heartthrob either. Like, I don't think that we're, I don't think you can swap out like a shirtless Matthew McConaughey at 25 for a shirtless Kevin Costner Mm -hmm. in something and get it. Like this was just the, this was the good Kevin Costner zone was Mm -hmm. like, let me take care of you. Let's look at our stuff together. Right. He, he, in, in a lot of ways is one of the great, dad vibe actors of all time. Yes. Like even more than my beloved Hanks, our beloved Hanks, (laughs) Hanks has, Weird, he has more of an edge than Costner does. He's funnier. I think he reads as smarter on, this is not fair. I don't know the relative IQ, I don't care. But Hanks, you look at Hanks in Philadelphia and he plays a really smart, sharp, vulnerable lawyer who is smarter and outmaneuvering you. Mm -hmm. But then he also plays an 11 year old in a 30-year-old's body in big with with some of the great physical comedy acting you're ever going to see. But then he also does, you know, he he does all the things that Tom Hanks can do, just much different. He does Forrest Gump, say what you will about that, but it was, you know, only Tom Hanks can do something like that. Costner can't do any of those things. Comparing anybody to Tom Hanks' range is pretty unfair. Well, but but even so, I mean, you look at, like, say, a Jeff Bridges, who's a Mm. similar age, right, who has a different vibe, but he's not going to, he could maybe play this, but he can't play big. But could he play, you know, he's not, Costner is sexy, but he's not Pitt or Clooney. He's vulnerable without being, I don't know, kind of a pushover. He's earnest without being naive and he's smart without being threatening. He's just kind of good for all time zones. Yeah, it's a, it's the like kind of archetypal Men want to be him. Women want to be with him. Sort of. Uh, do men want to be Ray Kinsella? I'm not sure about that. Maybe do not Ray Kinsella, but I think a lot of men did want to be Kevin Costner. I don't know. It, I, that that I don't, I'm not sure. Who was I looking at in like 1991? Going, it, I guess that the we, we we went through the anti pattern, which is the other end of the spectrum. You're looking at Arnold or mm. Sly, right? You're looking at the or Bruce Willis, which. Those guys are the the appeal. I think men wanted to be those guys oh, when it comes to actors. I think I don't think they wanted to be Costner. Something really powerful about a person who is clearly like not trying too hard, and Costner yeah. had that 
really, really had that. That's uh, that's something that he makes it look so yeah, he, easy. He makes it look easy. And I just like early uh, two hours ago while I was eating lunch, I was watching an interview with that Phil Alden Robinson did in 2013, like a, a great 45 minute interview called Page to Screen. We'll drop the link in the show notes. Where I didn't watch that. I'm going to watch yeah. it. I'm fascinated by this Phil Alden Robinson story. Oh my gosh. Where he's talking about the process. But, you know, as you just said, they almost didn't ask Costner to be in this because yeah. he had just been in Bull Durham. And apparently, Apparently, at the time, it was like believed in the industry that a baseball movie was just not a great call. So, like, why would someone like Kevin Costner mm. do two baseball movies in a row? But Costner apparently is a very good baseball player, and he re- is. Yeah, he plays. And he also you, plays for the love of the game later yeah, as a pitcher and, and very can, credible as a pitcher. Right, and you can see it in Bull Durham that he is actually quite good and knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And he has to. He had to dial it back for the scenes where he's actually doing baseball oh, things. Yeah. yeah, in Field of Dreams. So apparently, like, he can really pitch. But he had to, he's apparently what he said to Robinson was like, man, I've got to throw like I'm a duck out here so that he could he could pitch in a way that Ray Liotta could hit for that scene when he's pitching to Shoeless Joe the first time. And yeah. Robinson talked about, you know, going up to him at the end of the day of shooting and saying, I really, you know, I saw some like real humility on display in your acting mm. today and Costner saying thanks for noticing because like man it was killing me that I couldn't really show everything that I've got but I think that's it's such a smart choice for an actor to know when the best thing you can do is not go all the way to 11 and not mm-hmm. show the full range that you have and it made him this relatable everyman kind of it, it makes him this relatable everyman that is part of what makes the movie work also it made me wonder let's say you, you're ma- remaking this movie beat for beat today Mm. and you're not doing gender or race bending which i think you would make it more interesting it would add a a valence today that it wouldn't have sure had back then is matt damon ray kinsella like who's our costner now like he's dad right dad it's not hanks he's a little too old at this point Um, i mean matt damon's even a little too old at this point he's a little too old is it gosling maybe a little too good looking a little too little too smooth yeah we don't have like i mean not that Kevin Costner is average looking because I could mm-hmm. I have a thesis on that. <laughs> Stay tuned. Ham, John Ham, a little old, but maybe you could do maybe. a different version of Ham. Who has good dad? And he's too big. He, I mean, after Draper, you can't see Ham. I think like with being uh, like I'm mucking around with corn. Like it just seems you know, like you're not going to see it. Yeah, I don't, maybe like mm, Brian Cranston ten years ago. Yeah, I'm not as up as on my, like, who, who's even 30s? People are much older now, because it's like, you're looking at your Gyllenhaals are even in their 40s, right? Like, you need, mm-hmm. you're going back a couple years even before uh, before then. But this kind of movie, it's it's so contemplative for so much of it. Is it like a younger that, Hemsworth? Too good looking. Yeah. Or, or not too good, he's too brawny, right? Like, Costner's good looking, but he's right. not like lifting weights all the time but all leading men now since they have right. to be in a marvel movie at one point right. like ruffalo like maybe ruffalo oh, is interesting, ruffalo is interesting. Like yeah 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 he doesn't look he looks like he's like a new yorker right he's he's like an italian like costner is a midwest he looks like a midwest right do you know where costner's from i, I don't he could know be from indiana from all i know yeah but he i think like a yeah i think you need that like a dad energy thing and yeah. ruffalo has that right um hmm. so from there what works about the movie so costner clearly the the acting he does. I'm not sure Costner's a great actor. He's great at being Kevin Costner dad figures. Like when he tries to do a JFK or a Boston accent in um, JFK or other movies, like or not JFK, um, Thirteen Days, mm-hmm. very tough. 
But if he's given the chance to do Costner things, like now he's the the main actress's dad in movies. Like with right. when Molly's Game or some other thing, he shows up. It's like, oh, right, dad, Kevin <laughs> Costner's here. Everyone believes and he does that thing of being warm and vulnerable, but not a pushover at the same time. Um, what works about the movie? I, I guess the important thing is that the idea of it, and this is, you know, Phil Alden Robinson kept big structural pieces, but then moved some things and then got rid of some stuff. This idea of a cornfield turned into a baseball field that brings back baseball players is a really strange and cool idea. (laughs) It It just is. It's a really strange and cool idea. And that the bringing back of the baseball players is just a vehicle for the bringing back of Ray's dad, which Mm -hmm. I think, as you just alluded to, is the thing that really makes the movie work that in the book, we get the mention of Ray's dad, like on page two, and you know that that's sort of what the whole thing is driving at. And the movie really saves that reveal for the end that we're really doing this, the he and if you build it, he will come is Ray's dad, and that we're really saving that reveal for that final moment and hey dad want to have a catch like that's the biggest change i think that makes it work and not giving away what not explaining the magic you know they don't explain the magic in the book and i thought i think it was really smart to not explain the magic of the movie um i noticed when i got it on demand on my cable service that it's classified as fantasy and i was like well that's interesting because of course there's like this is about bringing back dead baseball players by building a baseball field out in your corn of course that's fantasy but it's not how i thought about the movie before so that was i have thought about that too because you know we we once had a really wide (laughs) i'd say heated discussion (laughs) about legendary at this point (laughs) fantasy the difference between fantasy and speculative fiction in person one time basically speculative fiction is the big category of what if yeah something that is not true and really couldn't be true as far as we know what if that were the case so under that rubric it is speculative i think this is more of a fable though and i think that Mm -hmm. difference is important Mm -hmm. because if you think about it too hard it the whole thing comes crumbling down so you cannot Think about the mechanics of the ghost, the rationale of the field, what actually is going to happen when that line of cars shows up. (laughs) Like it ruins the whole thing immediately. Like you can't, you have to take the end and the beginning of the movie as a snow globe universe Mm -hmm. and look at it for what it is. You cannot do the thing of like, well, does it's like from an M. Night Shyamalan sort of a way where like, does all the thing really connect together in a way that makes complete sense and it's tied up with the There are loopholes and plot (laughs) holes and things that are... That doesn't matter because you know what? It makes emotional sense within the rules it's established and it just works. Don't think about it too hard. It makes emotional sense and it's better to not ask the questions in this case. And I think all the things that really make the movie work are choices that Robinson made about what to leave out from the book. There's the only thing and and that he really builds the relationship between Ray and Annie and writes in the book banning thing, which that was a big surprise to me was that the whole Mm. like plot where they go to the PTA meeting and Annie gets to call the a book burning a woman a book burning Nazi cow, um, which is just one of the great insults of cinematic history. Um, Amy Madigan, I mean, the Annie role that Robinson wrote is great. And she brings just a wonderful, wonderful energy that is so needed. In the book, she... It's a nothing. It's, it's nothing. It's yeah, a nothing role. It's a walkover. It's a terrible part. That it's Robinson, a character. I read a, I went, you know, way down the internet rabbit hole oh. in prep for this. And I read an interview with, with Robinson where he said that 
he really latched on to the way that Annie is written in the book and wanted to see more of that kind of wife um, on screen. Like in the book, mm. there's a lot of Ray has a lot of affection for Annie and spends a lot of time talking about how he can't wait to like get home and hold her at night. And I would just like to take this moment to personally object to like phrases about awake in the middle of the night loving Annie because I don't ever need to read those again. That's that's not something. It's need not. You don't ever, need no. W.P. Kinsella's sex writing is not a thing that anyone needs to experience. Frankly, I'd be happy if there were no sex writing ever, but that's my <laughs> particular opinion. But we've, we've established that I'm a reading prude when it comes to those sorts of things. And, but she is like, Ray and hears the voice one time in the book and comes inside and is like, I heard this voice and I think I need to build a baseball field. And Annie's just game. And that, mm-hmm. and that Robinson picks up on how game she is and then draws out this thread of like, this is a very sort of 60s way of approaching yeah. things. And what if I give them this backstory and the movie opens with that you know I, I made in college I majored in English but really I majored in the 60s unbelievable cold <laughs> open so what good. an unbelievable cold open it's, it tells us everything we need to know without telling us too much and since you're not in the movie itself it doesn't like it's the most literal exposition in the world like you're reading like the abstract of the article before you're getting to mm-hmm. it, but it's fun. Like, it it's is. It's a fun little story in itself, and a miracle in its own way. You know, the book doesn't have Terrence Mann. The book has J.D. Salinger, and Ray yeah. gets the message that he's got to go kidnap J.D. Salinger. In fact, before it was called Shoeless Joe, the book was called The Kidnapping of J.D. Salinger. <laughs> like, the history of titling of these properties is kind of yeah, bonkers. Yeah, very interesting. Very um, interesting. And, not only did J.D. Salinger object to this sentimental presentation of himself, but I think it was distracting from the story to have people try to imagine or believe a, an actor on screen playing J.D. Salinger, who looms so large in popular mm-hmm. imagination precisely because he's such a recluse that he just Robinson was like, OK, what if instead we imagine this other what other kind of writer would have been formative to right. to Ray and Annie particularly? And let's make him the guy who invented the phrase of make love, not war. And and I just want to see James Earl Jones do this thing. So let's kind of write it with him in mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's when we get to the movie in terms of what makes it so special. I think the Costner's necessary but not sufficient like there's a lot of nece- like there's a lot of things that go but that that we buy the magic of the field mm-hmm. and the way they shoot it at dusk the way they shoot it at dawn the way the players you know joe comes out initially at night under the lights that we buy as silly as it sounds that somehow the movie gets us to buy that this is a real thing and how delicate the touch is it's hard to imagine watching it for the first time. I watched it with my kids. Mm. I'd never seen it before. They enjoyed it. They thought the voice was creepy, which when you think about it, the cornfield has now become a place of terror that's in popular true. culture, right? Like that's like, like you go out, it's like children of the corn sort of a situation where if you've been to the Midwest, if you've been to really farms of any kind at this time of year, you know, it's kind of early, late summer. It's not ready to harvest, but the corn is up and that coolness of the morning and the coolness of the evening where it's still hot and the sun is gorgeous, mm-hmm. and it feels like the world is an open bloom, an open flower at those moments, it sets us up for a kind of readiness to believe, I think, mm-hmm. that there is magic of it its own kind, and things can happen there. And the cinematography is just unbelievably great. But the deafness and the slowness and the confidence to say, we don't have to explain this, we're gonna let it happen, 
I think all Robinson does a couple of nice things were nice in terms of dialogue, but also can, Costner being Costner. There's another version of this movie where is he is he just nuts? Like we right. don't believe for a second that this is a manic episode or some sort of psychotic break or something like that. In 1989, we also didn't use that language in quite the way we have used yeah. now. But like we believe it's real from the moment we hear the voice and he sees the you know the field in the distance. Everything else is just how is he going to convince himself and how is he going to make it happen? So that we feel like we're in safe hands from the beginning really matters in a way I hadn't really ever mm. I hadn't really ever come to grips with before I don't think yeah I think that's a great point and to him being necessary but not sufficient I think the casting in general is just unbelievable stellar and the chemistry between the cast is stellar Timothy Busfield as Annie's brother Mark who in the book that character looms a lot larger as this like evil mm-hmm. guy who's trying to take over the farm is also just wonderful. And we know from the book that Annie's family are very religious and very judgmental. And this comes up a lot. And there's like one reference to it, maybe. It's all you need. In the script. You need in the movie, and there's then, the one thing. And then the wardrobe does a ton of work there. There's the, so the scene where they're having dinner and Annie's mom and I presume Annie's sister are dressed like character, like extras from Little House on the Prairie. And and her mom is wearing cat eye glasses from the 50s right, still. 30 yeah, years later, right. she, has an up, she has an updated And her, it's like, okay, you don't need, you, they don't need to say anything. Anything we know what these people mm-hmm. are about, and then you know James Earl Jones is wonderful. I have never made it through this film without just dying laughing, and I'm going to beat you with a crowbar and make you go away. <laughs> I'm going to beat you to death with a crowbar <laughs> and make you go away. And Robinson writes in so much. <laughs> My God, you're from the '60s. <laughs> you told me your finger was a gun. <laughs> Like there's there's so much humor in the script too that doesn't come across that or at least to me didn't come across in the book like that great moment when they when Costner and James Earl Jones get to the ballpark and they're like standing at the concession stand and Costner has just asked him like well what do you do with your time and he's like well I work and I take walks and I watch sunsets and Costner's like well what do you want and he James Earl Jones starts spouting off like kind of philosophical he's like no like do you want a hot like what do you want like a hot dog and a beer (laughs) no but not what you want in life but the movie moves so well between those two levels of that like the big existential questions of this book and then also really small intimate moments of humor i've never i think it took me reading the book to see that the salinger piece it's not bad in the book it just doesn't work in the same way because we have no prior about who salinger is Mm -hmm. so there's this recluse who, who the one thing people know about him as a recluse is going to go off with this guy right. to a ballpark. <laughs> and the same thing happens in the movie, but the difference is Jones plays it. I think Jones, it, the way that moment where he goes from absolute sort of distaste for Ray and all that he pre- represents mm-hmm. to genuinely being interested is a really important thing that I didn't buy in the book because it doesn't make any sense logically. Like, yeah. there's no way this guy, there's no way Terrence Mann is going to, knowing what we know about Terrence Mann at this point, he's going to go to a ball field with Ray unless Jones can get us to believe that he still got a little sparkle in his eye about being curious about the world, mm-hmm. right? That's, and whatever the, the, the magic is supposed to be doing for Terrence Mann. It's spo- and the Salinger thing is similar in the book, it's supposed to be reintegrating him into the world to sort of rescue him from 
fear, isolation, being under assault from culture, from the world, so that he can be his best self and do what he was born to do. And in this, in both cases, it's you're going to go away from the things of man to explore and do story, but you're not going to be subject to the harassment and like being famous and all that sort of things. But what Jones does, since we don't know who Terrence Mann is, we don't we don't have any preconceived notion, so we can fill him with this wonderful modulation from anger to magic to mm-hmm. belief to skepticism to humor um, to real pathos and a real understanding. And again, when I'm 1989, James Earl Jones, that's Darth Vader. Right. Like, and I think, you know, Jones is probably, we've probably missed most of Jones's best performances because they were on the stage, I think, is, is one thing that's known. But he's like, in a lot of great movies. But in this, when he's in his apartment and Ray is there, <laughs> Jones just acts circles around him. And again, it's part of Costner being subject to Jones and whatever and being nervous. But you see what James Earl, the power and the mirth Mm-hmm. all coming together in a really magical way. And it really powers, I think, man and Jones power the back half of the movie. Because once Ray builds the ball field, there's not a lot left for him to do, honestly, at that point. Yeah, the well, rest is sort of man and Moonlight Graham, which is its own kind of magic. But right, and that, that part is really important. The there. people will come, Ray. You know, it's, yeah. it's money they have and peace they lack. That whole mm-hmm. speech, which apparently James Earl Jones did not think would make it into the final cut. Like, that's a, <laughs> right. he says, you know, he loves filming it, but on the day that they're filming it, he is like telling Phil Eldon Robinson, I know this isn't going to make it. Like, how can yeah. it not make it? <laughs> how can you, how can you film this movie? I can um, understand that though. You're in the middle of Iowa on a set and it's the middle of summer and you're doing like this almost Shakespearean monologue I mean, to the, like Karen. I think the whole <laughs> like, no, the, it filming, just doesn't seem plausible. Filming yeah. this had to feel like a fever dream, right, <laughs> you know. Right. And when he, when Terrence Mann turns around and has like decided he is going to go back into the cornfield with the players and figure out, like, find out whatever's on the other side, the rapture of Terrence Mann, mm-hmm. if you will, from that final section of yes. the book. James Earl Jones gives this like great big smile and then there's this little giggle and this twinkle in his eye and and he sort of paws at the corn right yeah. he kind of sticks one hand out to sort of and like cracks up just a like. little and there's so much going on he's like he just gives such good face and there's so much going on in those like tiny gestures and these like small little sounds that he's letting out that there's also something very compelling i think about an actor of his stature both talent-wise and like literal physical stature being able to convey like delicate and soft emotions Mm -hmm. in that place of like watch me giggle while I walk into this corn and and being able to access that childlike wonder that I think is really at the heart of like the second heart of this story after you do the fathers and sons stuff is about openness to magic and yes, openness right. to wonder and how those things are transformative and mm. either they bring people back to life or they take you to see something about life that you've never seen before and Terrence Mann mm. gets both of those he gets to come back to the world and then he gets to go off to the magic place and yeah. for somebody yeah. who you know looks and sounds the way that James Earl Jones looks and sounds to be able to execute that is just like one again, one of those things where he makes it look so easy, but it's mm-hmm. it's all these like small things that add up to so much. I think his wardrobe does a lot of work too, because mm. he's sort of like both. He has sort of a scholarly craftsman vibe going on, because you know he's an he's a writer and clearly an, a literary genius, but also he can write code 
and he's wearing his page boy hat and he's right. got a lot of cardies going on. Like he's kind of a timeless of attire uh, of in himself. But like the warmth he gives, the, the one that struck me is when he's interviewing people about Moonlight Graham and somehow Jones gets you to believe that Terrence Mann isn't just there to sort of figure out the mystery. Mm. He becomes interested in Moonlight Graham himself. Mm-hmm. Like he's genuinely interested in hearing what these people have to say about this small town doctor who died what, 71 they said in the so he had died and he had died 18 years before in the timeline of the movie and that man is still interested in the world as you get a yeah. sense that he's actually he's not happy where he is where Salinger in the book tells us he's happy he couldn't be happier he's happy and you kind of believe it in the book so like what is Salinger doing makes less sense but Jones being out in the world or Jones as man being out in the world in seeing a real a still desire to connect with people makes a lot of other stuff mm-hmm. um, possible in the end. So I, in terms of the performances, Costner being Costner is super important, but I don't think you're ever going to be struck by God wasn't Costner great in that other than saying, isn't Costner great? Does right. that make sense? Like that's yeah. what you say. You say Costner is great, but you're like, wasn't Costner great in that? I think Jones, you say, is mm-hmm. great in this. Madigan, yep. you say she brings a openness but also an edge at the same time which i'm not quite sure how she pulls off like she's a wiry (laughs) fire plug you know with red hair which is a thing from the book as well um who then also will be like go do your thing and i don't have to understand it and then also i'm worried about the farm and i'm going to tell you that Mm -hmm. and i'm going to be vulnerable and like both things are happening at the same time so often that role would be one or the other it would be completely in or you're like God, she's just a nag yeah, the whole time. Nag is the word that I was thinking of too, that I think that character written another way just becomes yeah. a nag. And the the crackle of the relationship between Ray and Annie is so fun to yes. watch where he's kind, he's kind of the straight man, even though he's mm-hmm. currently the one having this wild experience. But they've got, they're, they're, she gets some great jokes in where it's like, clearly this is the kind of relationship where she's got his number and you don't really get away with much, right. but not in a mean way. What's you it know? got to do with baseball? Right. I, like, I love like, what, yeah, what's Terrence Mann got to do with baseball? And, and she's like, as a small boy, he had a bat named Rosebud. <laughs> you Rosebud. Just, oh like... my God. The small boy had a bat named Rosebud. <laughs> right. Yeah, that she's, she's, critical is not the right, skeptical. Like she questions without prosecuting. I guess. Yes. Like what is going on here is a really interesting trick. The other one that blows me away every time and I've gotten older, what Burt Lancaster does with Moonlight Graham uh, is amazing stuff. It is. It's amazing stuff what he does with Moonlight Graham there. It is. Um, plays the Moonlight Graham we encounter as an older man, I think just a year before he dies. I think this little segment is Kinsella at his best too. Because mm-hmm. if you take a piece that's most like what the book is like, it's the Moonlight Graham piece, mm-hmm. and the character is very similar. A lot of the words, that great monologue, a lot of the great language that Moonlight has is sort of this erudite, homespun. Well, he's a country doctor. He's yeah, probably the best educated person in a small town, and he acts like and it. We don't get to hear from Ray's dad about reflecting no. on his life, but we get to hear Moonlight Graham talking about, you know, like, I didn't realize that that was the only day, that and how day. you don't usually realize what the I'm paraphrasing like you you're not usually aware that you're having a pivotal experience while it's happening you know Mm. and I didn't realize that that was the only day and this like also recognition that it would have been great to play in the big leagues and have a big career but he's also just a, a like a man who wanted to be kind of a 
have a simple good life and be embedded in his community and that the real loss right. would have been if he couldn't have been a doctor for mm-hmm. 50 years. If I only got to be a doctor for five minutes, right. that would have been a that, tragedy. That, that kind of reflection and that Ray sees Moonlight do that, I think is built into some of the processing that I assume Ray is doing off the page <laughs> and off the screen about like, if this is how Moonlight Graham is thinking about his life and his regrets or his lack thereof, like how much of my understanding of my dad is real and how much of it is like assumption and projection. And mm-hmm. that's all part of Ray rethinking not his relationship with his dad because his dad's dead and they don't get to have a relationship again, but rethinking his memory of him and how he's going to hold that going forward. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting too, to think of, um, there's one rate of reading, um, you know, some of the, you know, the kind of, uh, grad school English stuff you do <laughs> to a book like Crime and Punishment is mm. you see how a lot of the other characters are um, Raskolnikov is the main character of Crime and Punishment like sort of different versions of them who yeah. if you dial up a lever dial down a lever you move thing a lot of these are these Ray's story John's story Moonlight Graham's stories um, Archie, Archie Graham's story um, Terrence Mann's story are all kind of versions of the same story which is things didn't go as you thought they would or hoped they might, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't go. They didn't go according to plan. They didn't go according to dream. And then, how do you respond with that? Well, Moonlight Graham found a, a calling, right? He found something to replace, to in substitute, where he could connect with other people and live out. You know, as as Aristotle says, to use your greatest skills for the greatest good. That is that is the definition of happiness. Terence Mann wanted to tell stories, wanted to connect, but was overwhelmed with the world, right? It was just a a tsunami of attention that was suffocating. And then Ray's own father was, it didn't go how I wanted. My wife dies. And I just, I just broke, Mm -hmm. right? I just kind of broke. And Ray is at this moment where he could go in a number of directions. Like, this is one thing that's a little less clear to me writ large is like, Ray doesn't articulate his father's his relationship with the father is his biggest problem very early in the movie. And so the weakest part of the writing for Robinson to me is that part where Kevin Costner says, I'm 37 year olds and I'm worried I'm never going to do a crazy thing in my life. Mm. Right. That, that, that's mm-hmm. his motivation is like the point of this is to do something cra- crazy. Like that's the buying the red convertible, like cliche of a sort of midlife crisis. But they're all asking, what is their life about? Is there a way to figure out what my life is about? Because the other thing Ray learns is not just, is that it's not the healing with his father that's important, is that when he turns then to look at Karen. Right. Is it, that That's the thing that really changes. Like, it's not about me. Like, that's Moonlight Graham learns that. Terrence Mann learns that. John Kinsella never gets a chance to learn it. Like, the way to figure out what to make your life about is how to make it not about you. Because if you do that, and if you're disappointed, then the whole thing's ru- ruined, mm-hmm. right? If your whole, my whole goal in life is to hit a double in the major leagues and it doesn't happen, well, then you're done. There's nowhere else to go. But Ray realizes that it's not about him. It's about this person and that person and how he can connect with other people. And it's one of the simplest things in Western literature, all this idea that Forrester said, just connect. It's as simple as that. Like, that's the thing. You don't even know how simple the thing you're looking for really is. And that catch at the end is a sort of mm-hmm. ultimate sort of mystical reconnection or forging connection that never existed there. But the idea of connection, too, and that's why then the movie works, because then everyone's like connecting to the movie. Right. The, the very thing the movie is about is what it does for people. And it's it's simple. It's not complicated. It's not controversial. It's timeless, maybe even a little naive. But God damn it, if it doesn't work, <laughs> if it doesn't feel as true now as it did then. It really does. And I think it works because so much of that 
gets to go unspoken or at least be like just under what we hear in the film that I I hear I hear the character saying I'm worried that I'm never going to do a crazy thing in my life not as like I want to go wild and get a red convertible and have a midlife crisis but it's like I'm afraid I'm never going to take a risk which is really mm. I'm afraid I'm not open I'm afraid I will be that's so weird though closed. I mean the context of the book it makes more sense and in, in, in the context of the movie they were at Berkeley and they've gone to live on a farm like yeah. that's a that that never made sense to me it's I like, think wait, it's you, like a, you moved to a farm from Berkeley of course you've taken yeah. a chance that's but so now weird. I'm 37 and I'm settling down and like he really yeah. likes the roots but like what if this means I'm closed and like he, he saw right. his father become closed off Terrence Mann has become mm-hmm. closed off in the book there's the whole sideline with Eddie Sissons who is maybe the most closed off of the characters of the versions of these men that are on the page and removing him from the movie is an interesting choice but he's so closed off and he's created that by like making his whole life be a lie about this experience that he never actually had about playing for the cubs and has been disconnected from family and disconnected Mm. from community and i i think that's the thing that ray is afraid of is uh, like will the cynicism kick in you know like am i going to be closed off and you can't make that discovery that life is really only good and meaningful when it's about other people if you are remaining closed off and that's the it's also i think the trap that terrence mann has been in of it was overwhelming i did this thing i put my work out into the world the response was overwhelming so I got to go into the cocoon. But then when you're in the cocoon, that's a very trapped and closed off feeling that lacks connection. And there's this sparkle that brings him back out. He does hunger for it. I think we all do. This is yes. part, like, this I think is, he does. Hung- well, he's still writing educational. Right. That's a like, change that is, Alden Robinson made is he's writing educational things for kids. So he wants yeah, to this is be a like, part of the world, not like Salinger, who didn't write anything after 1960. Right. This is the human. Yeah, it's the human condition that we need each other in some way yeah. and that we do need connection and the version of the story of like I'm J.D. Salinger and I'm really just happy alone on my mountain really like you can you say that or I guess you could be but if you are you're not entering the story in this way right right you just aren't and also that James Earl Jones is black adds a valence to Terrence Mann that Salinger doesn't have, especially as a political figure mm-hmm. where the boat rocker sounds like a more overtly work, political work, even because it's just by a black person than Catcher in the Rye ever was. And the world is dangerous right. for Terrence Mann in a way it's not for mm-hmm. J.D. Salinger. Like we don't really hear when Mann goes into his cocoon, but it's probably sick, late 60s. Bobby's dead. Malcolm's yep. dead. Martin's dead. Terrence Mann is going to be assassinated if you're looking at, you know, if you're reading the tea leaves or you're looking at the pattern. So there's a very way in which the world is connection on the level he's used to it as a public intellectual political literary figure is impossible. It's too Mm -hmm. dangerous. So what the field provides him is a safe space to do Terrence Mann things without being shot by some racist in uh, Birmingham, Alabama or in Boston or wherever. And I think the PTA meeting serves to show us that if you're willing to read the movie in that way, that they're having this PTA meeting about banning books. And one of the books they want to ban is Terrence Mann's Boat Rocker. And the response to the book is not just the overwhelming people from the 60s like Ray who love the book mm-hmm. and deeply connected to it and found it to be formative, but people who have been now in 1989, I guess, having negative reactions to it for almost 30 years and want to ban it and, you know, wave their power around and what kind of 
experiences a black writer who's doing political work is going to have out just in public life at the hands of those people, those PTA people just out loose in the world. Um, Coming for you is not a thing. I mean, we still have them in 2021 and you can take them back anytime, please. Um, But that's just not an experience that a writer wants to have or will feel safe having. And you need a degree, I think a pretty high degree of psychological safety, not just physical safety, to feel like you can access openness to connection and Mm -hmm. to wonder and to reanalyzing relationships and having any kind of reparative experience like these characters are having. Yeah, um, let's take another sponsor break. Then we're going to talk about the genius of Phil Alden Robinson (laughs) rather than focusing on the weaknesses of the book, but sort of show what Robinson does, talk about some of the things he did as a way of talking about the book, too, um, after the break here. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. When I told Michelle that Ray starts asking about his father playing with them from this jump when Shoeless Joe there, I don't think outrage is too strong of a term <laughs> to describe her reaction to that. She says it ruins the whole thing. Uh-huh. It takes away a lot of the magic. It takes away the selflessness mm-hmm. of Ray that you don't get his selfishness till the end, or at least self-interest. And he says, well, what's in it for me till the very right. end? And then it doesn't do... We didn't have term for it there, but the M. Night Shyamalan thing of everything makes sense Mm -hmm. that you didn't really understood still needed some wrapping around. Like it's the icy dead people and Bruce Willis is also dead. It's like, oh, this is also about all these people, but also about Ray's father and Ray himself. It's about everybody. Mm -hmm. All of these messages are about everybody himself. Much more 
up front of mind. He asks about the catcher he's expecting the whole time. Totally changes it. It does. Robinson realizes to withhold that. That Ray doesn't even know yet, right? That's the thing about therapy is like you don't even sometimes know the thing you're mad about. Mm-hmm. Like thing of thing of the field as a kind of therapy is an interesting metaphor <laughs> in its own kind of what it does and doesn't do for you. Um, cutting out the sort of the fourth horseman in Eddie, mm-hmm. this liar, wannabe, looking for some way to be somebody but lies about being a former baseball player. Of the things that people would be shocked to hear, I texted this to you. And I have to say this out loud. I don't know what to do about it. I think the only, the best and highest example of the stuff that's in here that you don't want is that Ray in the book has a twin brother named Richard who is a carnival worker whose wife's name is Gypsy. A little on the nose, mm-hmm. WP. Um and there is a scene that's conveyed in which Ray and his twin brother, oh, as you're teenagers, talk about this. take off their pants to measure their erections to compare the size of their boners together. That is a real thing that happens in this book, upon which Field of Dreams is based on. My soul has left my body, Jeff. This is all to say. This is the shining example of the concision. And there's not wholesale changes that Robinson made. He moved some things around. I think he was given a little gift by making it basically, it sounds like impossible to make this Salinger from all practical yeah. points of view. So he doesn't have to do any of the stuff that there works. He cuts out when Ray goes to Salinger to go find him. He makes a tour of ballparks and there's a little light racism in there, yeah. I think. There's yeah, some pretty, you know, in some places. There's a pretty yikes moment of crossing the street when black yeah. people are out. In, I think he's in Chicago at that. In the South Side going yeah. to see the White Sox. Yeah, um, it's pretty yikes. It's not what you want. And then the one... So really the two signal ones, though, are cutting out the stuff you don't need. And I'm going to include dick measuring as part of that. Just writ large, we <laughs> just don't need Just to be that. clear. Just to be clear. I wouldn't consider myself an award-winning screenwriter, but I would have left that on the floor too. Um, is changing that you don't know that the the he pain, ease his pain, the, the, the he pronouns are really about John Kinsella towards the end and that Ray isn't really considering that his dad could come back because it makes it makes more sense that he doesn't think of his dad on the level of shoeless Joe Jackson and major league baseball players like this is something else I think the other important one too is the book ends with Salinger's very similar to what Terrence Mann does sort of going into the the rapture of Salinger's rapture that happens before John meets his dad or in the in the in the Mm -hmm. movie and the ending scene is him meeting his father. And it's not the, hey, dad, you want to have a catch. It's just not right. in the book. And the other thing I think this movie is about, in addition to being fathers and sons, I'd be curious to hear about this, is one of, I, one of my desires, I think one of many people's desires, is to be seen and heard and felt without having to explain yourself, without mm-hmm. having to go to do the hard work of working through your issues, of working through what your communication problems are, always wanting to feel like you have an organic emotional connection with psychological safety with the people you care about. That's something we want. We can get those things, but we usually work hard on them and usually become vulnerable. It can be very difficult. The, the genius of, hey, dad, you want to have a catch, is that it gets to say everything you want. 
Mm-hmm. You get to you get it's just a pure metaphor of just unarticulated, unsaid, but wholly, I guess, affirming connection, right? Because mm-hmm. Costner's own metaphor at the beginning is, can you imagine a kid saying no to his dad about having a catch? It's a most elemental kind of rebuke, right? And then, by contrast, the saying yes is the most elemental kind of affirmation. Yes, I will. And us doing this thing together, it has no meaning besides that we are doing it together and we are connecting without all of the stuff that typically, quote unquote, men don't talk about their feeling stuff. Mm -hmm. But what I think when we say that is they don't want to because they want the thing underneath it without having to be vulnerable and exposed and blah, blah, blah. They want the, yes, I'll have a catch. Everything is okay. You're okay. I understand you and you understand me. Mm -hmm. And that's all that there is. So what do you take? Anything there for you, Rebecca? Do you like that? What do you want to say about that? I like that. I think that's true. And that there are... Well, and I think that men's reactions, especially to that final scene, like I don't, there's not a man in my life that you can say, hey, dad, want to have a catch to who can get through the sentence without tearing up. Like I can't even say the word catch in other other circumstances (laughs) now without like a little verklemmed. Yeah, I was, I was watching this on Monday afternoon and Bob was working from home and had been hanging out with me and we got near this point and he was like, I got to leave the room because I still have to get work done today. (laughs) And I was like, okay, bud, you know, see you later. But it's, it is such an elemental thing that, and it sounds, I think one, one of the things that you just said was like, you know, there's all you're asking for is being in this moment and that we don't have to have the big talk and we don't have to do yeah. the big thing. We're just in this moment together. And I think that we want that because those moments are really all we need. Like if right. we, if we could yes. just connect, if we didn't, I don't know if we didn't have society, like if we could just, we didn't have to judge each other. Right. We didn't if have we to didn't worry have... about other people judging us. Am right. I living up to my if, father's right. expectation? Is he living have... up to mine? And this is a much bigger like piece of criticism like, or a, a bigger piece of framing than I think WP Kinsella would be interested right. in. But like, if we didn't have, capitalism and patriarchy and toxic masculinity Mm. we could maybe just have these pure connections with each other that are just about seeing and connecting and it's the it's all the experiences and the way that the world kind of screws you up that require all the talking and all the work and all the dissecting and figuring out my pattern and figuring out your pattern and and all those pieces and it is a beautiful dream to just be able to see someone else and have them see you and feel understood in that moment and i i think it's important that Ray gets to have that because he's already in the pro like he's done this work. He has built the yeah. field. He's it's the payoff. Right. right. It's, yeah. It's, it's he's done the work. Right. He's built the field. He has been open to this mystery. He has opened to reconsidering who his father was and what his father's life was about and therefore what his own mm. life was about. And it's that like it's the fact that ray can see his dad that lets his dad see him back and that's i think that's why it's or one of the reasons that bit is so powerful on so many levels but i think that's really Mm -hmm. what's turning there is ray did all of this work himself like he gets to have that whole moment because of how he has transformed yeah, it's interesting because no, I mean, Terrence Mann has to do a little bit of, I mean, his is a, Terrence Mann work is a leap of faith, right, right? To join Ray to the ball field. And then it's affirmed when, once you get to see the magic, you are pulled along by mm-hmm. it, right? But then what's left over to do for Ray is to sort of 
wrap his head around like what yeah. this actually means. And it's this simple little thing and everything else is just gets in the way, mm-hmm. uh, gets in the way of that. One last sponsor break and maybe we'll pick some nits or open <laughs> questions or anything else we might have here at the end. Question for you. Is The Boat Rocker by Terrence Mann your number one draft pick of fictitious books oh. you would read if they came out tomorrow? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's simple. That was easy. I can't even think of something else. There's like well, a bunch of like books in Wes Anderson and like, you know, you could do a bunch of Yeah, things, well, but. and there's like The Shadow of the Wind inside The Shadow of the Wind. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting one too. Um, that's a good one too. But I mean, it, it is. And not for nothing, Amy Madigan is formative for me also. Like, Oh, talk about this. this. The very fiery, because we didn't, especially in 1989, there and like through the 90s, and too many characters still today, like the wife is often just naggy, or, Mm -hmm. you know, the wife is just shrill, or, or she's a doormat. And that Annie gets to have this perspective. She gets to be sharp and funny. You know, she she gets to halt the spread of neo-fascism <laughs> by, right. by defending a book. Like, the PTA book burning scene is, like, one of my key connections to this movie. Mm. And I was so surprised. And to still look. sadly relevant to right. what we talk about week in and week like, out. Right. These PTA meetings are still happening about some of the yeah. same books that they're talking right. about in this movie. Um, but it's, it's so it's so important. Her character is so important to me. And that like that sparkle of like they have this relationship with each other that's so affectionate, but it's not soft. It's not just purely mm. soft. And I I think that there's just something that I relate to there or that I aspire to, or maybe all of the above of um, like, I'll be in your corner, but I'm going to call you on your shit too. And I think that's part of being a good teammate or a good partner. And she just does it so well that, yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, that difference between being supportive and being a yes man or yes woman is actually not very well articulated or, you know, demonstrated a lot. Right. And she's got it. And so I think also as a, like as a younger person, especially, I would definitely have wanted to read The Boat Rocker by Terrence Mann because I would want to figure out how to be like Annie. Hmm. Could we also talk about the economics of corn farming <laughs> in Iowa? It's a rough go from so what I've So a baseball field is about four acres. So with four acres was enough to tip them over? Like what, what, what actually happened with the, with the Kinsella balance sheet? Mm. I'm, I'm still unclear about what happened here. Clearly, did they take out a loan to... to why why are they having money trouble? Is it that four acres of corn really was a difference between them, oh. make, them making their payment or not? Like, I'm not sure. Again, it just doesn't matter. Don't think about this yeah, much. Yeah, don't it think about it. It feels true. If you don't think about it, it feels true. But if, this is what I'm saying. If you actually go one step, <laughs> this is... it, if you step off in any direction, it's chaos and sadness and pain. So well, don't do it. But let me just show you where a couple of the places are. So that's one. Like I said before, that line of 400 people, or foreign cars immediately ruins it. It upends world religions. There are riots. <laughs> Ghosts are real. There's an afterlife. Oh my Where's my grandma? <laughs> Where's my grandma? <laughs> it's a horror show. This, not this to place mention, is burned to the ground within 72 hours. Yeah, not to mention the people who pay for it, but who can't see the baseball players, and then they That's have right. to get told it's because you're dead inside. Someone almost has to die in front of them. So there's like a whole industry of like near-death experiences <laughs> to enact your vision to see here. It's a complete mess. It's a complete mess. <laughs> Another one, I hate to say this. Oh, no. It's not bad. But does Ray Liotta give us anything here? No. And Ray Liotta yeah. is, it's not a great performance. And then I, 
have come to know like th- his mom had just died when they it's filmed. It's a tough moment for this. Ray. This yeah, is he, a, he this hasn't is, watched it after. Yeah, now, he's never it watched so it. It's a hard moment. Yeah. There are a couple moments where he has like a little wink in his eye that comes across, but it's it's pretty flat. Like Shoeless Joe, and I guess it could have gone the other way. Like someone playing Shoeless Joe could have dialed it up too yeah. much. Um, Oh, and that's one thing I just don't want to get through talking about the movie without mentioning is this like the little bits of humor that Robinson writes in using the banter between the ball yes. players is just yes. they're wonderful. You know, yeah. it's just really fun to watch. There's so much extra flavor in that. Is is Shoeless Joe and the Chicago Black Sox, the eight who took money from Arnold Rothstein to throw the 1919 World Series, is that really on the par with Terrence Mann maybe being assassinated for writing a book that, you know, uplifts people that are oppressed. Like, Shoeless Joe took the money. He he took the money to throw the World Series. And the and the book and the movie pre- try to do their best to present this as some great injustice. That mm-hmm. he was, you know what? If you take money from a gambler and say you're going to throw the World Series, I, I, I'm not Mr. Law and Order here, <laughs> but I think you don't get to play baseball anymore. I agree. Is that wrong? No. So it's like, you can't think about that too much. You can't yeah. think about it too yeah, much. Yeah, what are we trying to like seek justice for yeah, here I mean, for these a, guys? That's why I think it's made differently today. It is Negro Leagues. Or it's, you know, League of Their Own is maybe a different movie if mm. it's like the women's players that yeah. are coming back and, you know, getting to fill their dreams. That's another very interesting one. Also, one. this is one that Michelle that brought up that our Midwestern roots really called this out. There's a scene when Ray is building the field mm-hmm. and like some of the local yokels start like camping <laughs> out to watch him do it. Uh-huh. This would never happen in a million years. No, they would all be no. driving by and then like standing at the store talking to each yeah. other about it. Or him. they'd be working. They're all right. farmers. They don't have time to sit around and watch them do the thing. So that one blew me away too. Did you need the lights? Why, why did the, what is the, you don't need, the, the ghost tells him you have to have the lights because you see the vision, you sort of believe there, and this is d- done better in the movie too, where it's like you get to see it. But like, then in the book, Ray has to wait three years for Showless Joe to show yeah. up. In the movie, we're not sure how long it is, but it's at least one season because we see a shot of like the, the snow. Mm-hmm. So we've gone from summer, a full year. What, what are we sweating? What are we sweating Ray out here? Like, what, is this penance? Is this purgatory? Like, why didn't Shows Joe show up the first day? He did the thing. It didn't say build it and then wait three years and he will come. Like, what are we, what's going on there? Like, like, had the ghost magic not kicked in and he's to cycle up? You need to you need to let it prove overnight and double in size. Like I don't get what are we doing to Ray here? That seems unnecessary. He it does seem thing. unnecessary. I was just so relieved that it wasn't the three years from the book. Yeah, like just, why? I, and you it's get long enough. It's it, long enough that it feels you know like they're torture. It's just torture. One year is you, just long enough for a good montage, and this movie makes use of good montages a couple times. It is the the best. One, my favorite one is when he's building the the field, telling Karen about Shoeless Joe yeah. with the voiceover and all the stuff that's going on. Why how Shoeless Joe is a crook and shouldn't be allowed back in. But that's you know that's my that's my take <laughs> on it too. So again, you can't wander. You, also, Mark is portrayed as the villain, but he's looking out for the Kinsellas. He, they build a ball field. There's about the default. We hate Mark, and yet Timothy Buzzfield's just looking out for his family. He's like, you get to keep the house. That's the only reason. <laughs> oh, but it's extremely <laughs> tough look for Buzzfield here. Did him dirty. I don't like it. Oh, 
I do not share that sympathy. I was like, I've yearned for a flipped perspective version of this from Annie's point of view forever. I do not, I don't think we need to give Mark any. But look at it from Timothy, (laughs) but he's got his beard. He's very serious. That's how you know. Doesn't he have suspenders at one point? Like you really, you really do. If you don't remember, you're probably too young to remember, but. Timothy Buzzfield gets, he's a bigger star at this moment for being one of the leads on 30 something, which is a giant TV yeah. show about being adults. And he plays a dick, good <laughs> businessman who's a dick. So I think they just like said, you know what, we'll can you do the same guy. thing over here? And they made him for 30 something grow that beard to make him look more serious. And now it's like a Buzzfield signature yeah. to have the, the red beard. And we see him in Danny Kincannon later. Mm-hmm. But like Mark, what he's looking at his family staring out like, He's like these. These people are. This is a cult. Well, I these think are, these are Branch Davidians out here. They're standing in the middle of the field, just looking at blankness. And there's, I'd be calling psychiatric <laughs> services if I was Mark. There's a version of that too, but to go back to the reading of this as being about like connection and openness right. and wonder, he's gone so far into the side of practicality and and let me tell you what's good for you. And like, really, nothing is a nail in the coffin of connection faster than let me tell you what you need to do. No, no, no. But if someone is actually self-destructive, there is a sort of sense of like, we got to take the, you know, we got to take the keys from it. You're going to drive drunk here. I can't let you do it. Um, So that's (laughs) also, so that scene when his mom or Annie's mom (laughs) comes Mm -hmm. and the family what have they told them about what they're doing there? Did they tell them that, by the way, there might you might see ghosts on our baseball yeah, field when you come over for brunch? Have definitely, they, they don't seem prepped at all. They've definitely not told them that. I think they okay. have assumed going in that there's no way in hell Annie's family is going to see these guys. No, but they're the first ones that don't see it. They don't know that people can't see it before then oh, until Mark shows up that first time. Like, what are they telling Mark? They say, we built this baseball field, and now we see ghosts, but we're not going to mention it to our family. Well, since you like, don't know when the ghosts... come over. But the ghosts might not it. show up when they're there, so why prep them for a thing? That... No, but, but I'm saying, if we, just in case we're out there staring at these dudes, they're real. They're not like Civil War reenactors or something. Those are real ghosts you're seeing, so just so you know, that's all paid off. <laughs> Those are real ghosts. The ghost strategy worked. <laughs> Tim, oh my God! It's all going according. <laughs> you there, let, again. You, you can't. You can't look to. You can't go too far. Let it just go, stay on. Stay on the roller coaster rails. Enjoy the ride. Yeah. You, Don't um, look at the carnies. Don't look at the clowns oh their makeup. Just enjoy the show. <laughs> you have let you. You let yourself go to some places here. This is what I do, Rebecca. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. We enjoy Field of Dreams very much. I can honestly say. All respects to Kinsella, who had a really interesting seed of an idea. And a lot of the pieces are there, and some of the most beautiful language makes it to the movie. I'm not even ask you in our question, do you save the book or do you save the movie? There's no contest. It's the film. So there we are. Field of Dreams. Check it out. Watch it on a summer's eve. Um, and then go play catch with your daughter or son or whatever else you're going to do. Whatever catch is for you. We'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have and peace they like. Ray. Just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. 
find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes and they'll watch the game and it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters the memories will be so thick that I have to brush them away from their faces <laughs> 